Soccer 101, the podcast where we dive into the oasis of soccer's biggest questions and have a little swim around. Today, we're looking at ownership in the beautiful game. Who owns soccer teams in different locales? Who's allowed to own them? Why is there so much controversy around takeover deals such as those at Newcastle United? Who've been good owners? And cover your ears, Anthony Precott, who's been bad owners? My name is Ryan <laughs> Bailey and joining me today for that little swim in the oasis is Taylor Rockwell. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm very good. All the better for having a little chat with you today, Taylor, and also Mr. Joe Lowry. Hello, sir. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Joseph. And completing our awesome foursome, as always, Mr. Graham Ruthven. Hello. Greetings. (laughs) Greetings to you too. Uh, Graham, (laughs) you and I are uniquely qualified to talk about who can own a soccer team because we both do that, don't we? Don't we, Graham? (laughs) Are we going to talk about this for a second straight 101 podcast? Yes, we are. We're going to <laughs> boast about the fact that we, we are than everyone else. <laughs> yes, we are superior in every way to all other fans because I'm a part owner of AC Wimbledon, a fan-owned club, and you are a part owner of Sterling Albion, your club too, Greg. That is correct. Excellent. We can get to that a little later, but I think um, fan ownership is one uh, structure uh, for clubs. Uh, there are many others around the world. It does vary as to who can own a team. Uh, why don't we start off locally, uh, gents, with MLS? Um, who can own a team in MLS? Nobody is the uh, actual answer here because each team has an investor <laughs> operator that is technically a shareholder in the league. MLS is single entity, so teams and players are technically owned and their contracts are owned by the league. That doesn't mean you don't have owners who own uh, those shares, of course. Uh, you need to stump up a franchise free t- uh, fee, Taylor, typically to... Um, buy into MLS. David Tepper uh, is a recent example, paid an alleged $325 million uh, for Charlotte FC's entry into the league. They were at the time of his purchase, the 30th franchise, to do so. Uh, The St. Louis leadership, led by uh, Karen and Kendall Betts, paid $200 million not that long before Mr. Tepper. Um, Intriguing, Taylor, LAFC valued valued, at $880 million this year. The average franchise valuation is $550 million dollars that's quite a lot when you consider that newcastle was sold for around 420 million dollars but uh interesting the uh, structure taylor of ownership in mls i mean yeah interesting is certainly a word uh yeah and, <laughs> and it is and it is interesting when it comes down to not owning the team outright you own like the share of that team when it comes to the ownership pool and that is the closed system working for you and that is why people are willing to, sp- to spend those expansion fees because then you are Gaining entry to a closed system where you kind of have the stability of the league to back your investment to know that you'll continue to have it. And I think a lot of it is that you can then continue to have the value increase and potentially sell it on. I don't know how much money people are actually making from owning MLS teams, and I think that is probably a different conversation. But I think the valuation continues to be an interesting story and one that gets covered a lot when we get new ownership and new expansion fees. And I think the answer for me tends to be if you want to buy an MLS team, you need to find a market that has appeal and then you need to have a ton of money and that will sort of get the job done. Yes, all helpful factors. And I think, um, Taylor, maybe the the revenues the revenue potential of an MLS franchise doesn't necessarily come from tickets or from the cut of the mm-hmm. TV revenues. It's from stadium usage. It's from uh, getting revenues from the wider community as mm-hmm. well. Because, um, you know, when you look at someone like Mr. Tepper, for example, a very smart businessman who's literally made billions, he's not going to put that much money in if he doesn't see a return on it. Because, I mean, Graham, when you look at 
traditional soccer ownership, people haven't made money from it. But that maybe that tide is changing a little bit. Yeah, there's this. Um, I'm tempted to call it a myth because it has been a myth for a long time. But that that soccer is is big business. Obviously, towards the the top end of the sport, that may be correct. But you're right. Owning a soccer club is not necessarily a, a license to print money, and certainly in in MLS, where there is a lot of um, jibbity over how much money these clubs make, I, I noted that Arthur Blank was it last year or the year before said that that most MLS clubs were profitable, but obviously he didn't mention which ones were profitable and also how much profit that they're making. So um, yeah, it's it's not a guarantee that you're going to get rich off buying a soccer club. It more tends to be the case that if you're buying a soccer club, it's because you're rich. Yes. Indeed. And whenever you mention Arthur Fortune, by the way, Arthur Fortune, I just slipped and talked about the Simpsons character who made me think of when you mentioned Arthur Blank. Ah, Arthur Fortune. (laughs) Deep cut Simpsons uh, references, anybody, anybody. How about we move on and talk about a different league uh, where it's quite unique uh, as to who can own a team, Germany. Uh, where there, of course, is, Joe, the 50 plus one rule, where uh, fan, uh, clubs must be majority owned by uh, membership groups or fans, uh, and no big company or individual can own a club with a couple of exceptions, Joe. This is a fascinating one for me, Ryan, because this is a pretty well-known rule, generally speaking, I think, among people who are just really soccer nerds like us. The 50 plus one rule, meaning, like you're saying, Ryan, the fans have to have a majority of this club. They have voting rights, and it discourages control by a, a single owner, a single ownership group or entity or anything like that. What I did not really know, Ryan, and maybe I would buried my head in the sand until doing research for this show... But I didn't know about the exceptions to this rule, and Mm -hmm. I just had not really ever actually thought about it. Because if you think about it, it's pretty clear which teams maybe have an exception here. Bayer Leverkusen, owned Mm -hmm. by a pharmaceutical company, Bayer, right? Uh, Wolfsburg and VW, that connection, which we've talked about on the Total Soccer Show before. Hoffenheim as well. There's, I mean, then you've got Leipzig and that whole weird Red Bull structure, too. There are exceptions allowed here because the Bundesliga and and the, the DFL, the German Football League, understands or or at least is willing to make an exception for outside investment and owners and groups that have been involved for a long time. The number I've seen thrown out there is 20 years. And so these groups, yeah, that have been involved for that long were able to fly under the radar and get this exception to the 50 plus one rule. Fascinating to me. There's a lot of backlash in Germany among different groups of people, specifically owners that, that want this to look different, want this rule to look different or to disappear or at least change. Um, but I don't know how likely that is. I'm certainly not an expert on this financial structure of the Bundesliga, but the structure is fascinating. And and the reason that Leipzig gets yeah. so much heat, um, so they're slightly different as well from the <laughs> from the, the Bayer Leverkusen and the, and the Wolfsburg and the Hoffenheim example, where they have long-term investment. So Leipzig exploited the 51 plus, uh, 50 plus one loophole by only having a very small number of paying members. So it was 19 yep. in 2009 was the number that I found. So for context, Dortmund have close to 2,000 paying members. And those paying members are all Red Bull employees. So, the, you know, the, the the lines between what is a fan and who is an investor in Leipzig's case are very blurred. And one yeah. quick clarification, because people may know this. I have been asked before why we don't just call it the 51% rule. And the answer is because it's not the percentage. It's 50% plus one share must be fan owned. So it's like the absolute minimum for it to be fan-owned uh, or dominantly fan-owned, and that that's where it comes from. And then, yeah, Leipzig 
clever with the bookkeeping and how they kind of go about doing things to exploit that loophole. And it is the loophole aspect of things that I think has them being so disliked, as well as changing the name of the team and other things like that. Germans are sticklers for detail, Taylor. You'd think they call it the 50% plus one share rule. But uh, <laughs> hey, for, for, they for clarity. They probably do, and then they, <laughs> they made the exception for uh, us dummies who don't know things. And talking of exceptions, I do find it curious that you have to stick to this rule unless you don't. Unless you buy it, unless you're unless you're a Verkself team, unless you're like a factory team, and you've got some tradition uh, well, lasting more than twenty years, or unless you were bought by a software engine, uh, software magnate called Dietmar Hop, and you can do what true. you like. Aren't some of those are grandfathered in though, right? Some some yes. of those clubs were owned before the Bundesliga as it currently yes. exists existed. So I think there is part of that. But again, Leipzig not one of those, and Lawnball Sport is not a traditional football club name in Germany. It is now. <laughs> Give it 20 years, Taylor, and it will be a, a very traditional name. Uh, why don't we move ground to Spain, where uh, a limited company or an individual can own a team, but there are four exceptions. Yeah, so we, we spoke a little bit about this on the fan ownership soccer one-on-one that we did recently. So Barcelona and Real Madrid are the two most notable cases where they have hundreds of thousands of members who largely inherit shares or get shares through a a family connection so there's no real way for an outside investor to actually purchase those those shares or at least get enough of those shares to to have a a significant stake it would need to be a very long-term plan involving a full family tree for someone to uh, (laughs) to invest in in one of those clubs or meaningfully invest in one of those clubs barcelona um, their members are, are called socios and there's there's elections it's the same similar structure with real madrid um, there's elections they elect a president and that president and the board um, act on behalf of the paying members they do indeed uh one of the great ironies i feel taylor in italy uh there's not really any regulation as to who can own a team for hmm. a country which is loves nonsense bureaucracy and rules uh so uh, that's a uh, that's fun um What's interesting in Italy is that Fiorentina, Genoa, Milan, Roma, Spezia and Venezia all have American or part American ownership. Bologna are owned, uh, are Canadian owned uh, and Inter Milan are Chinese owned. The rest of the clubs are Italian owned. But Taylor, eight of 20 clubs in Serie A have North American ownership groups. Isn't that fun? I mean, I like it. I'm going to assume that's because Serie A was an undervalued asset for a while and, and mm. sort of wasn't as popular, at least here in the States, as the Premier League, as La Liga with Real Madrid and Barcelona, and with the Bundesliga. So I wonder if that was a league where Americans could sort of get in for a relatively smaller amount of money. Uh, That said, there's probably also an idea that sometimes Italian ownership hasn't always worked out for clubs. Silvio Berlusconi, being prime minister and also the head of AC Milan, is the one that most readily comes to mind in everything that happened with Berlusconi, and somehow continuing to be re-elected and somehow continuing to run Milan for a long while. Berlusconi, tell us everything that happened with Berlusconi, <laughs> Taylor. I would, but uh, to say it out loud would get me nailed with uh, racism and sexism tags, and I don't want <laughs> to say those things. Uh, no spoilers for the new Bunga Bond Bunga movie. Bunga parties, just look them up. Dan- just look them up. Daniel Craig says Bunga Bunga party in the new James Bond film. I, uh, that is not a spoiler, but it made me <laughs> laugh out loud. I'm thinking of someone who was elected three times to be prime minister of 
Italy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. There's only so much moral high ground we can take as Brits, though, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> or America. Or America. Yeah. Really yeah none of those three nations are uh, coming out of that argument gloriously. I will agree with you there, Graham. Uh, and speaking of inglorious ownership, why don't we move over to the Premier League, where clubs uh, can be registered as companies, public or privately. They can have uh, individual owners, or they can be member-owned, non-profit sports organizations, a.k.a. fan ownership, which is something we touched on in the last uh, Soccer 101, if you want to refer back to that listener there was a uh, I'll call it a fad maybe Graham about 20 years ago or so of teams going public uh, Tottenham for example went public t- publicly traded as in you could buy shares in them publicly mm-hmm. through your broker or through an investment uh, vehicle of some kind so Tottenham went publicly traded uh, I think for about 10 years until 2011 they went private again and a lot of uh, clubs who did that I think even teams like Millwall went started publicly trading and have gone private again Uh, There's also some peculiar situations in the UK where clubs are bought very cheaply. Chelsea, not bought very cheaply by uh, Roman Abramovich, but by the former owner, Ken Bates. He paid £1 for Chelsea in 1982. Uh, He agreed to take on debts of a million and a half pounds in doing so. But there is, Graham, a little bit of controversy around ownership in the UK. Uh, Newcastle United being one of the newest examples of which. Yeah. Maybe you can give us a little pricey of that, Graham. And the fit and proper persons test. Yeah, so the, the Premier League has, a, as they call it, an owners and directors test, which um, outlines, I'm actually reading from their own handbook here, so outlines requirements that would prohibit an individual from becoming an owner or director of a club. These include include criminal convictions for a wide range of offences, a ban by a sporting or professional body, or breaches of certain key uh, key football regulations, such as match fixing. And then there's a a whole load of um, other reasons that you might be blocked from owning a club in the Premier League. Most of them are are common common sense, including if you've filed for bankruptcy at any time in in your life. But with regards to the Saudi Arabia-backed takeover of Newcastle United, which has obviously been completed recently. There is a lot of controversy around that, basically because the fit and proper owners test in the Premier League doesn't really have anything. It, it doesn't have anything that could block that or could validate it in any way. It's not really written into the rules. It feels like the rules are slightly out of date in that regard. Given that Manchester City have had a, a similar takeover where they they have been bought by, I guess, a sovereign wealth fund, a whole state, a Gulf state. And the Premier League appeared to be attempting to determine whether the public investment fund, we're talking about Newcastle United here, whether the the public investment fund, which is Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, fund, would have control over the club. Um, And it was kind of being done in very grey areas. They were trying to kind of make up the rules as they go along. And ultimately, they decided that the fund, which now owns 80% of Newcastle United and whose chairman is Mohammed bin Salman and whose governor of the PIF, the Public Investment Fund, is now the new Newcastle United chairman. Yeah, they decided that they wouldn't have any control over the club. Um, So it's all good, guys. Uh, And (laughs) yeah, the Premier League has found itself in a bit of a a pickle with regards to sports washing, as it's dubbed, and actual states and sovereign wealth funds buying club. And there is a a clamour for a new amendment to be added to the fit and proper owners test, which would account for this and give the Premier League some way of actually having a criteria to validate these, validate these uh, takeover attempts. 
And to make it worse, Graham, the controversy from the Premier League's perspective when Newcastle were lining up this bid wasn't about the uh, potential controversy yeah. of the PIF ownership group. It was about piracy in Saudi Arabia. It was that being sports were blocked from uh, broadcasting in Saudi for, I think, four years. And you watched, uh, if you were in Saudi, you watched the Premier League on Be Out rather than Be In. Uh, be Out Q. That's not real. <laughs> That's real. That's, That's a thing. A joke. That's so a joke. <laughs> the Premier League was bothered by the fact that their rights were being abused in terms of their broadcast rights, not any other yeah. kind of rights which the, may be affected by this. Yeah, the uh, important stuff, you know, yeah. not the human rights violations or stuff yeah. like that. So a murderous autocratic regime isn't the problem. It's the uh, it's the broadcast rights from be out <laughs> Um we Let's dig into this a little bit more. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly for more on this and some maybe look at some good and some bad owners. We'll be right back. Today's episode of Soccer 101 is brought to you by NetSuite. Successful companies know faster growth requires the right tools. If you're doing one, ten, or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more all in one place. And perhaps as importantly, it does it very quickly. Slow works if you are on vacation or if you're a sloth. If you're a sloth, slow is sort of your nature. If you're a cheetah... Not so much. And if you want the cheetah of financial systems, then NetSuite by Oracle is the way to go. You can automate your processes and close your books in no time, no matter how big your business grows. And it's worth noting, 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control since switching to NetSuite. Right now, special financing is back. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those ready to switch today. Head to netsuite.com slash sports right now. Get special financing at netsuite.com slash sports. One more time, netsuite.com slash sports. Soccer 101, we have returned. We were talking, uh, Taylor, about the UK Fit and Proper Persons test, which I think we can agree maybe isn't quite fit for purpose. It does have a lot of controversy and it has done over the years. Um, As Graham mentioned there, you can fail if you uh, have filed for bankruptcy in soccer, if you've been insolvent as a director of a soccer club two or more times in the UK, and there's various other reasons you can fail. But it's not a good test when you look at the people who have passed it. I'll give you some examples. Uh, Taxi Chinawatra, mm-hmm. who was uh, the owner of Man City before their current owners, was literally a fugitive from Thailand when he, uh, when he, was, uh, uh, t- when he took charge of Man City in 2007. He was the Prime Minister of Thailand the year before, overthrown by a military coup, uh, bought Man City after trying to buy Fulham and Liverpool. He paid $81.5 million for them and sold them to Abu Dhabi for $200 million, so he made a profit on that. Uh, a bit of a controversial figure. Uh, Carsten Young at Birmingham. He was uh, an owner there until 2014. He was a convicted money launderer. Uh, Massimo Cellino at Leeds uh, for three years up till 2014. Twice convicted of fraud in Italy long before he took the reins at Leeds. And even, uh, just one just to come to my head as well, Graham, uh, Flavio Briatore, who was um, uh, an F1 principal for a yeah. long time, ha- had an ownership at QPR. He's been accused of match fixing in F1. Maybe that was after yeah. his ownership in QPR, but he's got certainly uh, a checkered past as well. But Taylor, there's coming an back... Excellent, sorry, sorry to jump in, Ryan. There's an excellent documentary about uh, Briatore's time at QPR. Yes. I think it's called The Four-Year Plan, maybe? The Four-Year or Plan, fa- that's right. Yeah, and um, it's kind of before these kind of sports documentaries were, were fashionable. So we say pre-Last Dance, and it's, yeah. it's very good. 
You the most unpolished document you've ever seen. It's shocking what Briatore and his ownership <laughs> group let let go on that edit, shall we say, yeah. Graham? <laughs> uh, but uh, Taylor, at the risk of uh, calling up the uh, TSS uh, fire truck of lawyers, mm-hmm. your thoughts on the fit and proper persons test? I mean, I think it does what it's supposed to do, which is allow the Premier League to say that they have a fit and proper persons test that doesn't really yeah. do that much or prevent anybody yeah. from owning a football club. That's kind of the way I see it. I mean, it seems to be for the most part in place to ensure that massive clubs don't have uh, insolvency issues particularly quickly. As you pointed out, there are still people who can pass with criminal convictions. I think they are far less concerned about morality issues to the point where I think they would prefer to avoid those altogether, which is what they've kind of done. So that's where you're you're never going to have an issue with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the sovereign wealth fund buying a club because they're never going to get convicted of a crime in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else. So then it just comes down to, like, have they had any, have they run any other clubs, anything like that? No, well then, in you come, on board you come. And and so it does require, I think, fan response. And even then, I don't think you're going to get a huge amount of outrage. And I don't even really begrudge Newcastle fans for being into it. I think if Man United had been bought by Saudi owners, I would have stopped enjoying Manchester United. For Newcastle, having spent so long under Mike Ashley, I sort of can't fault them for being like, well, we've had one terrible owner. Why not at least have an owner who has a ton of money and will allow us to be more competitive? Yeah, it's it's interesting as well. I think one of the conflicts as well is in terms of sports washing, Taylor, like the, there are rules that you can't... Uh, there's a conflict if you own two clubs in the same mm-hmm. football league like in the four divisions you can't do that but you can own a club in several different European yep. locations as like the Pozzos do for example uh, but then when it comes to actually sport, uh, you know representing an entire nation and, and doing that sports washing thing that doesn't represent a conflict for the Premier League and that doesn't sit very well with me well because they wouldn't call it sports washing they would just say no it's a uh, it's a a wealth fund that recognizes the value of the Premier League and everything it has to offer and wants to become more involved in promoting the beautiful game. You know, you can find all the buzzwords you want, when in reality, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, they, they want the profile of being associated with a Premier League team because that normalizes a regime that I don't think should be normalized and, you know, has killed a journalist like I, and, and many other people. So I, I the fire truck of lawyers, is welcome to, uh, to get involved here. But yeah, I, I personally... I think it's it's pretty sad that 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 this is the way it's gone. But also, I mean, when you start having people buying clubs at smaller level, I think this is kind of the way it goes. And so it's an all or nothing sort of approach. And I don't and think you're ever going to be able to get billionaires out of football, especially when there's so much money to be made on a global scale. I wish that were the case, but I don't think it really is short of going the sort of fan-owned, deliberately smaller route that Wimbledon and uh, Sterling Albion have gone. <laughs> and, and Taylor, just when you're talking about not, begrud- not begrudging Newcastle fans yep. there with the takeover, I, I totally agree and I feel sorry for them that yep. their moment of celebration, yep. which should have come um, finally when they banished Mike Ashley, who's been a terrible owner for that club for so many years, it should have been an unadulterated moment of just pure joy and I feel sorry for them that they're having to face these really difficult questions about their fandom. However, when people talk about you know, these guys are going to invest in, the new owners are going to invest in the club and they're going to invest in the area that has been neglected for so long. That is why sports washing is so successful. Like the the discussion we're having, that is sports washing. And that's why, like, I find this particular takeover so cynical because 
the Saudi Arabian consortium have, in my opinion, clearly targeted a club that is that is ripe for that kind of you know if they'd taken over Leicester City for example Leicester yeah. City fans would go well we've had it good before you know these guys aren't really bringing us anything different they're they're taking over a club that really needs their investment and an area as well I think that's important as well yep. an area mm-hmm. the northeast gets in, ignored so often in the UK and so they're going to get all this investment and that is why sports washing works yeah because then it, you build this infrastructure and if there are facilities and amenities and public parks that are now functioning and well-funded, it's always going to look its like the people of that area. I, I, again, I don't begrudge them, but it's going to be like, yeah, it's great. It's been great for the community. It's been wonderful. And you have a built-in community now defending uh, the Saudi regime. And, and I think, like, yeah, that's, that's what it's meant to do. I agree with you that there's a reason why Newcastle appealed. Because I think of... A conversation long ago I listened to on like World Football Phone In about who could break into the Big Four, uh, the Big Four at the time, and Newcastle was the nominee for the like passion of the fans and the size of the stadium. But the argument against it was always the weather and it being so far north and how what? you have people who already don't want to live in Manchester year round. Do they want to live in Newcastle? Like I think like you have the idea was that you had to have a reputation to back up the pedigree or whatever it might be. But if you have that money, I think there's there's a way to get people there, certainly. And I think there's a way to Artificial kind of, clouds. Yeah, there we go, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to move the sun closer. I think that's the plan. What could go wrong? So, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, like, it, you know, it would be fairly hypocritical of me to say, no, this is evil. Well, the club that I support is owned by foreign ownership who are, uh, you know, I wouldn't say just as bad, but bad in their own way. Not great, Bob. It's uh, yeah. the Glazers, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, what before? Just before we leave sports washing, Graham. I suppose my confusion comes in: Does it actually work? Do we think less or more of Qatar based yeah, on their own PSG? Like, if let's say that um, the, the Saudi owners regenerate Newcastle and spend loads of money in the community, and they get Newcastle, one city in the northeast of England, on board with them, does that really affect their global reputation when they have? a successful soccer team. That's what I can't quite work out in my head. Yeah, and, and you could argue that by, you know, you have Qatar buying PSG, you have Abu Dhabi buying Manchester City, and now you have this uh, Saudi Arabian back consortium buying Newcastle. We're, we're, we're discussing about, we're, we're talking about them a lot more and, and not in a not in a largely positive way, I would say. But I do wonder how much of that is like our little Twitter echo chamber and how mm. much actually your average fan in the street. And I'm, ta- I'm not just talking about Newcastle, I'm talking about uh, across the country, wh- whether they care about that and whether they actually do just think, oh, well, you know, Saudi Arabia has made Newcastle United the Premier League champions and the European champions. You know, they must be, they must be good at something. They must know what they're doing. I, I do wonder if that is actually the, the prevailing thought process Uh, see i see it a little bit differently i think i just see it as as normalization and that if you have shirt sponsors Mm -hmm. that are airlines it becomes more of a like oh yeah i'm flying dubai like i'm flying the qatar airways it makes it more of a normalized thing and i like i feel uh, uneasy saying this argument but i will uh sheikh mansoor who's the majority owner of manchester city when you see him in manchester he's wearing a suit when you see him not in manchester he is not wearing a suit he is wearing more traditional garb and that to me is part of this there's an idea of look we're western look how friendly we are we run airlines we do this we do that we invest in concerts we can't be that bad and i think there is this 
we're publicly facing putting on this persona, whereas we're not really changing things or the way we operate in our own countries. And if anything, we're using this as a way to consolidate and, further power. And there's also an aspect of putting up more barriers of bureaucracy between yep. yourself and maybe any consequences. So Roman Abramovich... Um, it's alleged that he basically, that's why he bought Chelsea. He bought mm-hmm. Chelsea at a time when he was facing pretty serious accusations from the Kremlin relating to his kind of oligarchy and, and certain ways he had benefited from the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And so he bought Chelsea because being in a very public position was going to make it, make it difficult to extract him from London, yep. essentially, and from a very public position in, in British life and, and, and worldwide life, I guess, mm. as the Premier League's a worldwide brand. So I'm not saying that that's necessarily a primary motivation for Saudi Arabia getting involved in Newcastle United, but just being in a public role makes it difficult for them to face more any consequences, which I know that seems the wrong way around, but it, it, it's true. Yeah, and then so, I, and I think it also points out, if not the hypocrisy, then the fact that I think what, what the other thing that I find kind of frustrating is maybe not as much sports washing. It's about when there is conflict and what happens then. And was it PSG or Man City's lawyers that said, like, whatever the fine is, we'll put that money towards lawyers? Do you all remember that one? City, yeah. wasn't it? I think so. It was like yeah, City will fine 50 million, yeah. and instead of paying it, they're yeah. like, we're going to spend 50 million in court and we will outspend you. And then I think UEFA were sort of like, never mind, we changed our mind. And I think those moments show where the real power is and who has the actual control. And I think the moments that sort of sort of put a spotlight on the regulatory uh, groups and people who run the sport and who manage the sport don't have as much control as they would like us to think. I think that is could be a good thing, but in reality shows that fundamentally money is the controlling thing and is what's going to guide the way things go. And yeah, you know, it's not dissimilar from the American court system, I would say, where, like, would another club have gotten in more trouble for what they were doing for breaking financial fair play, but because they didn't have the bankroll to fight in court? Yeah, probably. And so I think it exposes a little bit of the hypocrisy in a more public way than uh, some people, myself included, are used to. And, Graham, you mentioned Abramovich there, the OG reputation washer, if you will. Um, yeah. The same Abramovich who is reportedly not allowed in the UK at the moment because his investor visa uh, expired and he has to prove the legitimacy of his wealth, which is a tall order, apparently, uh, at the risk of um, uh, getting in a fire truck involved in this conversation. Uh, one thing I'll note, Taylor, about your, your note about uh, Sheikh Manzoor being in Man City and wearing a suit. If you wanted to fit in, I think the only suit he'd wear in Manchester would be a tracksuit. Yeah, of um, course, and get the mod, the, the mod haircut and have like <laughs> like an Oasis album in his arm at all times. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, that checks out. He'd need the haircut and everything. <laughs> yes, you're quite right. Uh, why don't we round out this pod, gents, by maybe talking about the bad... And the good ownership uh, from the past. Uh, Joe, uh, I mentioned a name at the top of the show. Anthony yes, you Pricott. did. <laughs> Mr. Prickott from the Columbus Crew now with the Austin FC. Would you care to expound on that? I would be more than happy to. Ryan, both of the owners that I wanted to bring up for this good and bad discussion, we've already at least said their names on the show. They're both MLS-based. We'll start with Precourt uh, with the, very, uh, the case where an ownership has gone very wrong. Precourt bought the crew from Clark Hunt back in 2012, 
And the crew were there for a while, and then he decided that he wanted to move the team from Columbus, Ohio to Austin, Texas, which people were not happy about. Ryan, I think this is something that you can relate to very intimately in this yeah. in this particular situation. Through a ton of hard work, a ton of hard work and dedication from fans and a new ownership group um, with the Haslams and Dr. Pete Edwards, the crew are still in Columbus, Ohio. Precourt moved uh, and got a franchise in Austin, essentially yeah, Austin became an expansion team with a, a current owner, investor operator, excuse me, in Major League Soccer. It's a little bit of a, a strange situation. But Austin got their team. Precourt got what he wanted. Columbus Crew fans got what they wanted. They have a new stadium now in Columbus, Ohio. Things really did end up working out, but through no goodwill of Anthony Precourt in that situation. Yeah, just like Wimbledon. Worked yeah. out all right in the end. Yeah. Uh, the other one you're going to talk about, Joe? Uh, yes, uh, Arthur Blank. I, I do think he's done an excellent job investing oh, into, I think bad. into United. I was like, wow. That's no, 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 I, no. You better get ready for your inbox to fill up, my friend. You are right. Atlanta United fans, forgive me. Pretend I did not make that confusing. No, I think Arthur Blank has done a great job with Atlanta United. Atlanta entering MLS back in 2017. That's the, the year they started playing, at least in Major League Soccer. Immediately competitive, right? Big crowds. They're playing in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which is not a soccer-specific stadium, but it's a it's a great facility for them. That's been huge, I think, for that market and for Major League Soccer. And most importantly, Arthur Blank spends money, right? They've yep. spent money on players recently that haven't even really worked all that well, but the fact that they continue to do so. They've got Marcelino Moreno, who they bought um, from South America for a decent chunk of change. Alan Franco, a center back who they spent big money on, hasn't been all that good in Major League Soccer yet. But, I mean, the, the list kind of goes on and on. Araujo from uh, from Lille. They brought over this attacking player from the defending Liga champions, right? So there's real, there's real vision here. There's a real willingness from Arthur Blank to invest in this group. And right now in the stage of Major League Soccer that the league is in, that's absolutely huge. It is indeed. Uh, we've talked a lot about the bad, and we've mentioned people, Graham, like Mike Ashley, uh, who had Newcastle, I would say, as the biggest underachieving team in the world. Uh, we've touched on the Glazers as well and the controversy with them and um, essentially pulling money out of Man United and not investing enough, Taylor. Uh, there's also situations like Portsmouth, uh, who in 20, uh, 2009-10 had four owners before they went bankrupt, and then they led to, that led them to the fan ownership model, which we discussed on last week's episode. And the fans sold out to uh, Michael Eisner, uh, formerly of Disney. Uh, that's, a, that's an example of that, that kind of thing happening. But why don't we finish out on a positive note with good ownership? I would like to get the ball rolling with Leicester City, yep. who are owned by King Power Duty Free, uh, whose owner was uh, Vichaya Shivanda Prabha, uh, who sadly, very sadly died at the stadium in 2018 when his helicopter crashed. But he is a man, uh, Taylor, who bought the team in 2011, uh, promotions from League One uh, and the Championship into the Premier League, and they've done a good thing in 2015-16. <laughs> yeah, w- winning the Premier League is uh, a good way to cement your status as beloved. But also just seems to have been genuinely beloved, uh, had a lot of goodwill, I think did a lot in the community that did not have the air of trying to legitimize some something else behind the scenes. Instead, just seemed to care about the club, buy into the club and want the best for them and didn't, as I understand it, have that air of is buying them to maybe sell them on, which is the knock against other ownership groups who do do a good job, but maybe with an eye towards making it a successful business to then move on. I did not mm. get that uh, impression from Sri Vidana Prabha. 
I mean, and he and he bought them uh, donuts and beer. So, yes, you know. <laughs> I was going to say you'd show up at a Leicester game That's and you get donor. a yeah. free donut at the start or a free beer. There's lots of that kind of thing. Lots of goodwill stuff going on. You could be cynical and say that you know it is a vehicle for King Power and to promote the brand, yeah. but uh, very much uh, a, a positive force for Leicester and the city as well. Uh, another one I'd like to bring up, Graham Matthew Benham, who we've mentioned before at Brentford. Uh, Brentford were also yep. a fan-owned club. Uh, Matthew Benham is a fan himself, but he bought out the fans and has got 100% um, uh, control of Brentford now, uh, who had one of the lowest budgets in the Championship when it got promoted to the Premier League. He's a popular man there too, Graham. He, he is indeed, and the, the transformation of, of Brentford is, is quite incredible. And the, the, the way that he, as you referenced, the way he has, he's, put in, he's instilled an ethos of doing things slightly different with data and everything, that all comes from him. So they've got a lot to to thank for him I, I guess my I am always even the good owners I have to say I'm I'm always sceptical I always think what's the what's the exit strategy it always feels like that can get quite messy I, 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 one owner who had a brilliant exit strategy I have to talk about as a good owner from a Scottish perspective is Anne Budge so when Hearts were facing administration and liquidation they were facing going out of existence Basically, the, the the foundation of Hearts at that time, they didn't have the money to buy the Hearts, uh, buy Hearts as a fan-owned club, and so Anne Budge, who is a, a wealthy businesswoman, who is a Hearts fan, she stepped in, bought Hearts, and said, "Look, after five years or after you have raised the money, I will give the club to you." And that that transfer of control happened this year, and she walked away from the club, having saved the club, having put the, up her, her own money to buy the club, to rid them of debt, mm. to build a new stand, to take them back up to the Scottish Premiership. She walked away and handed over control to the fans. So I have to mention Anne Budge. Oh, I thought handed over to control to Logan Roy. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> or was that Hibbs? I'm not even sure. Logan, I can't remember. Logan Roy knows that. All I know is that Kieran Culkin got it wrong. Um, I think I think so, they bought Hearts, and he's a Hibbs fan. I think that's is what right. It Okay. And he's from Dundee. And even makes there, total sense. And even there, they the the entire goal of that is to when the Super League is established, then we'll make money, which is a frightening insight into how accurate some of those episodes are. Uh, on oh, a yeah. on a happier wow. note, uh, I would note I I don't know much about him, so I hope I'm not putting my foot in my mouth here. But Tony Bloom, who owns or is the majority owner of Brighton, seems to be a person who should be on the list of of beneficial owners. Uh, he took charge of the club before they were in the Premier League. I, I think they get promotion for the first time in like 34 years, but then he is heavily responsible for developing their new ground, but also developing other areas of Brighton, and I did not realize that Hove was its own place. I assumed that was some sort of combination name. It's not. Uh, so it seems like he's done a lot for the club, and obviously they are still in the Premier League and competitive uh, for a club of their size and stature, but then also I believe Tony Bloom is from Brighton, which feels like what you're supposed to do if you have a ton of money uh, is invest it back into your local. Yeah, it would also be acceptable if you were from Hove as well, of course. <laughs> Ain't no party like a Hove party. That's what they say down on the south coast, Taylor. I don't know um, if, if any of that is real, but I believe it. Uh, I had, Hove is real. I had some bad ones. Uh, I will just say very quickly that in reading, I was reminded of how bad the Venkies were for Blackburn and continue to be for Blackburn. Oh, yeah. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw them in there as yeah. being very bad owners who didn't seem like they knew much about if the If only for those chicken adverts. I mean, yeah, that didn't help either. A, a chicken processing company is not what you want when you're looking at potential ownership groups. Maybe, <laughs> no offense to the chicken farmers of the world, but chicken processing sounds unpleasant. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think the people of Lancashire would agree they have not and mm. did not do a good job, Taylor. Uh, one other good name I think we could, hasn't been mentioned is Guo Guangchang. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, but it's the Wolves owner, yeah. uh, the Chinese owner who got them from League One to the Premier League as well, who is much loved uh, in that area of the world. Joe, any other honourable mentions for, um, for, for good owners? I mean, there's there's a handful of others in MLS as well. Really, I look at a lot of teams that just spend money, and that's I focus on MLS and thinking about this this question. I don't have any specific ones that I want to call out, but shout David out to Beckham? you. Yeah, sh- okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, all right. Graham just shut down my point. Uh, oh, not sorry. All the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> not bad. all the owners that spend money are, are, are doing a great job for a number of different reasons, but largely in this evolution, in, in this stage of the league, I want to give credit to those folks that are willing to invest. You want to give credit to any of LAFC's 76 owners? Yeah, I was thinking about LAFC and I thought to myself, I'm not going to spend 30 seconds reading through that list. <laughs> was it Bolton who had the owner who like no one knew anything about and maybe he lost them in a poker game? I forget what club that was recently that like had an owner who was all about like, we're going to invest everything and we're going to be the next big super club. And then suddenly... Like, was no longer in charge of the club. Somebody else had taken over, and there was speculation, at least at one point, that maybe he had lost them in a poker game, which I would say is not what you want from your own. Oopsie. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we Bolton can we'll were, put that firmly in the oopsie category. They they were minutes away from going bust and uh, losing their league place, but uh, they were rescued. Uh, Bolton, have, yeah, they certainly had their troubled ownership group as well. Uh, gents, I think we have pretty much covered the question or the topic of club ownership. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your contributions. As always, good, sir. Uh, right back at you. If you all don't hear from me again, it's because I have been arrested or am being prosecuted for uh, crimes against the kingdom. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have the lawyers comb through this one. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you very much indeed. You got it, Ryan. And Graham Rosman, you keep owning that team, you. <laughs> I will. I intend to. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Thanks, listener. We'll catch you soon. Bye. Bye.